We are continuing this morning with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, concentrating on chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. If you've been with us recently, you will know that we are currently working our way through what is the second main section of this letter. The first section was essentially an introduction and took us through the first 17 verses of chapter 1, culminating with Paul's words in verse 16 to 17 about the gospel being the power of God for salvation and his words about the righteousness of God, by which Paul is referring to God's bringing undeserving sinners into a right relationship with him by crediting them with his righteousness. Now, as we've seen, that very brief introduction of this idea of the righteousness of God serves as a prelude to a fuller discussion that Paul will make a little further on in the letter. It's a foretaste of some coming good news, but before he really expands upon it, he has some bad news to deliver. He has some hard things to say that will end up implicating every single person on the planet, placing them and us all under the same banner of unrighteousness, that is, of being unrighteous, uh, being ungodly people who are deserving of God's justifiable wrath against human sin and rebellion. Well, this section, the, the bad news section of Paul's letter, runs from verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through to verse 20 of chapter 3. Thus far, we've had two looks into this bad news section, both times focusing on verses 18 to 20 of chapter 1. And in those two studies, we saw a number of things. We looked, for instance, at the wrath of God and what in general has incited it, and further, why the wrath of God is totally compatible with the notion of a loving God. We then looked at one thing in particular, that is, after looking at what has incited the wrath of God in general, we've looked at, we looked at something that incited the wrath of God in particular, namely, the willful suppression of the truth about God, and specifically the truth that, that God exists and that He is divinely powerful. This morning we will think a bit further about this matter of humanity's suppression of the truth about God, and we will see the specific form of truth suppression that Paul has in view here, and with that we will see some of what Paul describes as the effects or results of that suppression upon those who engage in it, and finally we'll see the terrible exchange that takes place as a result. That's where we're going this morning. Before we proceed any further, let's pray together. Father in heaven, please help us this morning to hear and respond and respond well and with faith to the good things you show us in your word and then help us to receive those good things as the truth and light and life that they are. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Let me read the passage for us now. I'm going to go back a little earlier to give us a little more context, back to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And uh, then this is the section before us this morning. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now the first thing I want you to notice here is the form, or perhaps forms, that the suppression of truth about which Paul is speaking here have taken. In other words, the question is, how, in Paul's understanding, has the suppression of the truth about God manifested itself? And you look at, and as you look at verse 21, you see there are at least two ways that it has been made evident, or that is it, it has manifested itself. Paul writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks to Him. Okay, so, uh, again, two things there. Paul talks about not honoring God and about not giving thanks to God. And they are two different things, but they're also two related things. Since it can be said that honoring God or glorifying God is, in one sense at least, a form of saying thank you. It is a, a way of expressing gratitude toward God. And the opposite is true as well, since thanking God would imply and entail one's acknowledging God for who He is. So the two ideas really are wrapped up in each other. At any rate, in thinking about these two ideas, one writer named Morris says this, Paul affirms that people had real knowledge of God. It is a truth on which he is insisting. But having this knowledge, they reacted in the wrong way. They did not glorify Him as God. This means that they knew enough about Him to know that glory was His due, but they withheld it from Him. They may perhaps have said polite things about Him, but they did not ascribe to Him the glory that was His due. In short, what Morris seems to be suggesting is that not honoring God or not glorifying God means essentially not really taking God seriously. It means not recognizing Him for who He is, not treating Him as the God, the ruler, the majestic King, as the creator and therefore owner of the universe that He truly is. Again, and in brief, it, it means not taking Him seriously. It's sort of like people who say that they believe in God, and by that they mean that they believe there may be some sort of superior being out there. And I think that people who think that way often feel as if they're doing all right by God, as if they're doing Him a huge favor by admitting that uh, those things. But they're not, you see. That's what Morris is talking about. That's, that's not giving God His due. That's not honoring God as God. That's a begrudging admission to something that is felt to be a remote possibility, but not something that will be allowed to have any real impact upon one's life and choices. In short, and again, it's not taking God seriously. It's a severely uh, edited, small, 
controllable, uh, manageable version of God. It's God in my pocket, um, God on a leash. God is the smiling, uh, kindly old man who would never say a harsh word to anyone. Uh, God is Santa Claus. God is my personal genie whose only desire is to grant my wishes. Uh, it's God as George Burns or Steve Carell or even John Denver, I think. In other words, it's not God. It's a caricature of God. In everyday conversations, this is the God that appears at the end of almost any sentence that starts with the phrase, I like to think of God as, and then, you know, whatever. You, you fill in the blank. It's the God that is strictly and culturally defined so that He amazingly lines up with everything you personally believe and never ever asks you to believe or accept anything that is outside of your personal comfort zone or which would go against or render you unpopular with the majority view in our culture, whether it's a view about wealth or material possessions or sexuality or freedom or men or women or human rights, etc. It's what we saw last week, isn't it? From the very beginning, people everywhere have actively engaged in suppressing the truth about God in order to create a God in their own image. And why do we do this? Because we cannot stand the thought that there is a God out there and it is not us. And you see, when you create a God in your own image, when you do that, all you're doing there, right, all that ends up being is you creating a subtle way of sneaking yourself in through the back door in order that you can take your place on the throne of the universe. Because after all, if you get to decide what God is and is not like, then that means you're God. You might try to make it look like God is out there or over there somewhere and you're really worshipping Him, this other person, but you're not. All you worship in that context, when it's a God of your own making, is nothing more than yourself. It's self-worship. You might as well be standing in front of a mirror blowing yourself kisses. God's wrath is incited at the suppression of the truth about Him, including and especially when that suppression takes the form of not honoring Him as the God He is. And then with that is this whole problem of not only refusing to honor God as God, but also refusing to thank Him, by which Paul means a real, genuine, heartfelt gratitude toward God, one that comes as a full, or at least as a growing, recognition of who He is and what He's done and is doing and will do. In other words, it's a real thankfulness, and one that is a far cry from the all-too-easily-uttered uh, thank God expression that falls so quickly from the lips of even the most committed pagan, but which is not coming from any real recognition of or gratitude for God. It's not coming from a heart that has bowed the knee to its creator and king. And so linking this with what we've already seen in our previous study, verses 18 to 20, Paul is saying that God has clearly revealed himself through his creation, and the knowledge is such that it renders people, all people, without excuse before God. And the evidence that this clearly revealed truth about God has been and continues to be suppressed is seen in the fact that people have not and do not honor God 
as God, nor are they truly or deeply or sincerely thankful to Him. That's the first thing I want us to see this morning. The second thing I want us to see here is not only how the suppression of truth has manifested itself, but also what Paul sees as some of the effects or outworkings of this suppression of truth upon humanity. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, just as before, there are two things there to think about for a moment. Firstly, Paul says that one of the consequences of the suppression of the truth about God is that people's thinking becomes futile in that context, or perhaps leads to futility. Now, what does Paul mean by this? Well, let me start by saying what I think he doesn't mean. I don't think Paul means that the minds of people who reject the truth of God do not function properly, or that they're not capable of amazing or even brilliant reasoning and experimentation and discovery, etc. Clearly they are. Right? Paul doesn't say rejecting God renders you incapable of thinking. He says it renders your thinking futile. Another word for that is pointless or perhaps purposeless or even better, hopeless. It may be brilliant thinking, but at the end of the day, it's not taking you anywhere because it doesn't believe that there is ultimately anywhere to be taken to in an unsupervised universe that's just going on by means of ultimately random processes. It may be brilliant, but in the end, it leaves you wondering, what then is the point of any of this? It may be brilliant, but in the end, it leaves you without any answers and without any real hope, especially in the face of tragedy. When our daughter Melanie died in Australia, I had a very good friend whom I will call Mark, not his real name, who is not a Christian but was a good friend and was deeply distressed and really quite undone by the death of our daughter. And Mark came to, to see me one day, not long afterwards, and very sincerely and uh, very sensitively, he wasn't taking a shot or anything, but he had genuine questions, and he asked me how I could continue to believe in a good God after Melanie's death. Right? He was gen it was a real question. He was genuinely baffled by that, and was obviously wrestling within himself to come to terms with the apparent futility and the seeming randomness of it all. Right? I mean, Mark had spent his life um, suppressing the truth about God, and his thoughts and life were characterized by the effects of that. Right? Mark was and is still, to, to this day, a very smart man. He was one of my closer friends there in Australia. I love spending time with him. But at the end of all his thinking, the end of all his puzzling and uh, reasoning and grieving over what had happened, he had no answers. He had no hope, no purpose, no comfort. What he had, the place he ended up, was just futility. That's the kind of thing I, I think Paul was talking about. The other effect or consequence of suppressing the truth of God, as Paul says it here, is that their foolish hearts were darkened. 
And while it's not entirely clear what Paul has in mind here, it seems that this is probably referring to the cumulative effect over time of continuing to suppress the truth about God. And this effect, I believe, is seen both in individuals as well as upon the whole, whole cultures and societies. Right? If there's a, a darkening, a dulling, a desensitizing, a progression that is more and more resistant to the light of truth. In short, the more we suppress the truth, the more prone we become to continue to do so. And the more incapable we render ourselves of responding, and the more callous our hearts tend to become. The third thing I want you to see this morning is not only how the suppression of truth has manifested itself and some of the effects or consequences of that suppression, but also what, according to Paul, is the inevitable outcome of suppressing the truth about God. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now when Paul wrote these words, he no doubt had in mind various actual temples he'd seen in the different cities to which he'd gone, like Corinth or Ephesus. And in those temples he would have seen the very kinds of things he describes here. Images of men or women, or at least resembling them, uh, statues of birds and all sorts of animals. And all of these things were set up as objects of devotion and worship, as focal points for prayer and sacrifice, and as a means to obtaining and securing beauty or success or fertility, an abundant harvest, a victory in battle, whatever, all sorts of things. And writing about these things and comparing it to our own day, Keller has this to say. Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas, gyms, studios, or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to produce the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. Keller's point is simply that idolatry is not just a first-century church problem. It's an ongoing reality for any and every culture, including our own. The exchange of true worship of the true God for the false worship and the pursuit of false gods is as much a reality for us as it was for people in Paul's day. Which is why Paul talks about the suppression of the truth about God as something that leads to an exchange and not just a void, 
right? It's an exchange, not a void. Contrary to what some might think, the fact that a person rejects God does not mean that that person now worships nothing. It simply means that he or she is now worshiping something else, something typically along the lines of the sorts of things that Keller talks about in his comments. Whatever it means, though, it doesn't mean that they cease to be a worshiper. Now, it may not be immediately obvious to you when you look at a person's life and try to figure out where he or she worships, but if you start digging around, if you start paying attention, if you look at where the time is spent, the money is spent, the sacrifices are being made, if you follow the trail of blood, you will eventually come across the altar upon which the sacrifices are being made, including ultimate sacrifices. And when you have found the altar, you have found the idol. You have found the thing to which that person is looking for ultimate worth, ultimate value, for personal meaning and significance. And the problem is, nothing but God, I mean nothing but God, the true God, can deliver when it comes to matters of ultimate worth and ultimate value and ultimate significance. At the end of the day, then, um, this, says Paul, in effect, is where suppressing the truth about God leads. It is evidenced by a failure to honor God as God or to thank Him. It results in thinking that is futile and without hope and in hearts that are darkened, and ultimately it leads to an exchange taking place where people refusing to acknowledge the true God will fall down and worship and treat as having ultimate worth almost anything else, including so-called gods made in their own image, by their own hands, hearts or minds, or even the worship of much lesser things, even bizarre things. People who do these things, people who suppress the truth about God and exchange the worship of Him for something less, may feel themselves to be quite clever, quite wise. But Paul says they are not wise, and in fact have become fools. And they are fools, again, not because they don't have good minds. They may have very good minds. And it's not because they don't possess real or even advanced knowledge and facts about the world. It's simply that they refuse to acknowledge the single most fundamental fact of the entire universe, the fact that God exists and is divinely powerful. No matter what else a person knows or admits, if he or she will not admit that, then that is the biblical definition of foolishness. Well, our time is almost gone, and so with the little bit we have left, let me just highlight a few matters for your ongoing consideration. First of all, and as you've heard me say a number of times already, in these verses, Paul is saying some pretty difficult things. He's painting a picture of humanity that is not at all flattering, and which really does implicate the entire human race in its suppression of truth about God. And further, it implicates the entire human race in its failure to honor God or thank Him and in the futility and darkness of its thinking and its, in its preparedness to exchange the worship of the true God for the worship of almost anything else, including lesser things, including nonsensical things. And one of the consequences of this is that it ought to drive us back once again 
to the truth of Romans 1.17. It ought to drive us back there because it is precisely because we, the human race, are guilty of the sorts of things described in verses 21 to 23. That we need the sort of right standing with God that only God himself can provide. And in fact, has provided in and through the cross of Christ. Only by God's merciful provision there can we be delivered from our truth suppression, from our ingratitude, and from our idolatrous hearts. And praise God for that. A second takeaway for you or us here is simply that we ought not be intimidated by those whom we know by family and friends and colleagues and neighbors and classmates, you know, whoever. But we ought not be intimidated by those who suppress the truth about God, even if they are quite clever in doing so. Because what these verses tell us is that while a person might indeed be quite superior on the scale of human intelligence, and might therefore think himself or herself to be very wise, and by contrast, might regard you with your faith as being terribly foolish, in spite of all that, we need to take Paul's words here to heart and remember that this person, no matter how smart, is also one whose thinking is and has been ultimately rendered futile or pointless or without hope by their suppression of truth. Further, it is a person whose heart has been darkened and who uh, somewhere in his or her life is worshipping a false god or plurality of gods and is denying the god who truly is and who is by that count alone, by their denial and by that action alone, they are foolish. But then the third takeaway follows closely on the heels of that second one and it's simply this. Not only should we not be intimidated by those in our lives who continue to suppress the truth of God, even when they do it loudly, even when they do it arrogantly, or even condescendingly, not only should we not be intimidated by things like that, but we should respond to these things, that is, not react, but respond to these things with generosity and compassion, remembering that we too once stood under the very indictment that is yet held up against them. And our response to these things, then, should not be ridicule or to somehow delight in the precariousness of their situation. Our response to them ought to be shaped not by how they may have regarded us or treated us from their position of perceived wisdom, but rather our response ought to proceed from what is actually true about them in their situation. Even if you are treated badly, even if you are ridiculed by others in their continued suppression of the truth, don't let that shape your response to them. Let the fact that they are lost shape your response. Let the fact that their thinking is futile shape your response. That their hearts are darkened. Let that move you to be compassionate and beyond that to be bold even reckless with the gospel. Let the knowledge that they are potentially facing the full unrestrained wrath of God move you to humility and to a compassionate response and a clear verbal and visual witness. Let's pray together.